Hello, and welcome to Literary Work in Progress, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. I'm Cameron, and earlier today I promised my supervisor that I would come in tomorrow if he needed me. I'm Kristen, and also earlier today I promised my sister that I would make sweet potato fries, and I did. I'm Tracy Nettercott, and I have been promising for the past week and a half that I would do these loads of laundry, and did not deliver on <laughs> So some of us are good at promises, and some of us aren't. Right, Tracy? <laughs> some promises are easier than others to fulfill. I mean, like, I would rather have sweet potato fries than fold laundry, so... I would rather be up to no good than do my laundry, which is why I have not folded my laundry. I just don't <laughs> promise people that I'm going to fold the laundry. <laughs> So today we have special guest Tracy Nethercott. We're debut buddies. We Our books came out on the same day. Her book is called Grey Wolf Island. Tracy, tell us about yourself. Grey Wolf Island is about five teens who go in search of legendary treasure on this mysterious island. And it seems to be drawing out their secrets the closer they get to the treasure. So it has hints of magic and these life-changing friendships and this secondary storyline that I'm not very good about describing without spoilers. So yeah, that's it. Thank you for having me. That sounds like a lot of fun. That's the best in books when you can't say anything about it because it will spoil it. <laughs> really, though, I'm really excited to read your book, Tracy. So me too. Everyone should. <laughs> Everyone should. So in case you hadn't realized from our intros, we are talking about making promises today, something very important in your first chapters. So what does it mean to make promises at the beginning of a book? Well, when I was thinking about this throughout the week, I guess readers come to your book with a set of expectations based on other books that they've read. In the first few chapters of the book, they're trying to compare the expectations that they're used to with what you are going to give them. And so the details that you place at the start of your book and, and throughout the book really are kind of what clue in your readers to what exactly is going to happen. And if you are implying things that are going to happen that don't happen, you're going to have a bunch of disappointed readers. And if you fulfill a promise that you didn't make, then you're going to have a bunch of surprised readers and not in the way you probably want. The payoff won't be as big as it could have been. If in the first chapter of your book, you have your female heroine ogling really, really attractive guys, and then there's no romance in the book, that's a problem because you're making false promises. That's Whereas true. if you have your heroine cutting people's heads off and the rest <laughs> of the book is about fighting, then that's a really good promise to make. You only have such a short amount of time for people to get interested in your book before they put it aside for something else, that you kind of have to make these promises if you want to keep their attention. You know, most people aren't going to dedicate, you know, half a book before they start to give up. So this is your way of saying, here's what to expect. Here's why you should keep reading. Here's what's going to happen if you continue reading. You're going to get romance or fantasy or friendship, whatever it is. It's sort of giving them a heads up of what they're going to get going into it. If you think about tropes as the different moving parts of a story that do work, that are recognizable as independent things that, that happen do, consistently, that, that happen consistently across multiple, they're techniques. They're kind of they're, they're, they're techniques that you can use to tell a story. They're not always techniques. Tropes are the morphemes of storytelling. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Why don't you give us some <laughs> examples? Hashtag linguistics. Okay, so. give us some examples of tropes, Cameron. Important. So, action girl is an example of a trope. It's something that's recognizable, especially in YA. You mm -hmm. have, like, if you're going to be a little tongue-in-cheek about it, you have these teenage girls who are much better at fighting than they should be. Mm -hmm. That is a recognizable thing across multiple books, and, and at least within this specific community, that is called an action girl. There's lots oh. of, like, different other... So another example of a trope could be that dark is not evil or that light is not good. 
So you have different books. You have books that play with light and dark motifs beyond just the straight. Well, if it's if, if it's bright, it must be a good guy. If it's if it's dark, it must be a bad guy. So you're saying that tropes tell you what sort of promises they're going to Yeah, the similar like promises. So, for example, if your book is the kind of thing that's going to walk in a more gray area where light is not necessarily good and dark is not necessarily evil, it's important to make those promises up front so people who feel strongly one way or another about it don't get into the middle of your book and are suddenly turned off by what's going on. Dan Wells talks about this with his I Am Not a Serial Killer, the first book. Yeah. Um, a lot of people apparently complained about it because it is a like serial killer book the main character in it is a boy who is a sociopath and he knows he's a sociopath he's obsessed with serial killers and is worried that he will accidentally break one of the rules he set for himself and hurt somebody but he doesn't talk very much about how there's actually a paranormal like monster in the book until about halfway and so people had a hard time with I think that when I read it, I knew that that was going to happen because there are clues, but it wasn't strong enough so that the people who like the serial killer, like mind crazy stuff going on in it, when they got to the monster, were like, I don't like this anymore. And then the people who like monster stuff didn't get to it. It's like the Cloverfield Lane movie. I love that movie. But it's kind of the same thing where you spend the whole time thinking, oh, girl trapped in a bunker. And then you get to the very end and suddenly the last like five minutes are aliens. (laughs) And and, like as a person who likes alien movies, I was like, man, if you had put in more hints that this was an alien thing earlier, I would have been much more invested. If you've seen the first one. Oh, I haven't. Oh, so no, that, you haven't? No. I love the, the first one. Okay, so the first one says up the promises. And I guess I guess you can do it I like that. Same, I had the same reaction as you, where I was like, uh, this is not what I was thinking. I think there's a fine line between making a promise and then having a twist at the end that you've set it up for, and then making no promises and having a twist at the end, like, you know, I also had the same reaction with the Cloverfield Lane movie, where you're like, this sort of came out of left field. I wasn't expecting this. There's, I've, I've read that before, you know, a book that I thought it was completely contemporary. And then at the end, there was this paranormal. And I was like, wait a minute, this is not the type of book that I thought I was reading. And I kind of didn't want that aspect. So I feel like you can walk the line. But if you set up a few hints or promises in the beginning, you might not get those disappointed readers when it comes to the end. Making promises does not mean you're not allowed to have twists, but what I, I think is important is that if you are going to have twists, you can make that promise by having small twists in the beginning. If you can set up subverted expectations early on, people will understand that the book they're reading is going to have twists because you've already had some. I have an example for that. A thief. Because in the beginning, when Gen mm-hmm. is taken out of prison, and then it turns out, surprise, the king's been standing behind the curtain. And they're like, oh, that's a cool little twist at the beginning. And then, wha-bam, big twist later. I think that the really yeah. important thing about twists is that it makes sense. And yeah. so once you get to the end, you're like, oh, I didn't see it. But <coughs> all of the information is there that you should have seen it. Like, there's one piece of information that was held back. So it's not fun to get to the middle and be like, paranormal monster, What? But it is if you're like, oh, because of this and this and this, this totally makes sense. That was very specific, <laughs> unspecific. If you have all those things and then it'll make the other thing make sense. Um, we were going to talk about being consistent, promising mood and tone. One that I thought was really interesting anyway is Shannon Hale. She wrote two books that are set in this Austin land place. If you've read Austin land, it's so about good. 
these girls who go to, or not usually girls, middle-aged women usually, who go live out their Pride and Prejudice fantasies in the countryside in these stately old homes, and they're actors who are playing, like, Mr. Darcy-type characters, and woo them, and it's exciting, I guess. It's funny. But in the first one, it's a romance where we have our heroine who's trying to, like, overcome these ideas she has about what romance should look like. And then the second one is a murder mystery. And the language she uses is very different, even though it's the same setting. Like, in the first one, it talks about the beautiful stately places, and she paints, and she's always looking at the actors and trying to decide whether they're real or fake or whether people actually want to talk to her, whether it's work. And then you have, in the second one, where she's, like, walking up the stairs, and it looks like a slash of blood like dripping down someone's neck it's very different tonally and you can tell that she's making different promises about what's going to happen in the book based on it i actually thought of one of the a book i recently read that sort of gets at the same idea and this is the shadows we know by heart by jennifer park and the only thing i knew going in was that this was a tarzan retelling and it involved this boy in the woods who is living with these creatures and i think we you talked a little bit on this about the promises you make and the preconceived notions that readers are coming into your book having. You know, if it's a fantasy, they're coming in knowing that there's probably going to be this world that's not ours, maybe magic, lots of world building. So you sort of want to set up promises that you sort of you want to set up promises that align with that. But I think also there's there's an opportunity in the beginning where you can take what people think they know about your book or are expecting about your book and turn it on its head. And that's how I felt reading this book. I started it thinking, okay, there's a good potential for a book about Tarzan and Sasquatch to be a little hokey and silly. But her opening chapter is really somber. And there's, you could just tell right away, the writing is beautiful. And you could tell this is not about Sasquatch or Bigfoot. This is a story about grief. And it's just set a completely different tone than what I was expecting. And delivered on that promise throughout the entire book. So I think there's a difference between, you know, always sticking with the tropes of what I guess your premise sets up and turning those tropes on their head and letting readers know this is going to happen, that it's going to be turned on on its head. I think that's a really good point. Actually, this week I read An Enchantment of Ravens by... Oh, um, I want to read that one. Okay, yeah. So I was expecting kind of like a serious, like, sexy story, because that's usually what, like, it's about fairy phase, stories yeah. are. Mm-hmm. But within the first chapter, a detail is revealed that the main character's twin sisters used to be goats. And it, like, made me laugh out loud. And I was like, okay, this is not going to be the sort of story I was expecting. And I think I like what it's going to be more than I would have liked the other one. And so I think a really good point, Tracy, is you have to adjust your reader's expectations to what your book actually is going to be. And you need to do it fairly quickly. Otherwise, it's going to take readers by surprise. You can't take tropes for granted either. A lot of people roll their eyes over tropes. Like as soon as you set up that love triangle or whatever else, people are like, oh, not again. Because Mm -hmm. there's a reason that they're in every single book. There's a lot of ways to use them and make them work. And it does set expectations that help people to get into your book. But if you do them the same way everybody else does, then why would people read your book when they can read all the other ones that have already done it? Use of a prologue. Oh, okay. Mm. Caitlin doesn't like prologues. I don't. They're kind of out of vogue at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I like prologues. I think you read different type. You read read a different different market than Caitlin does, right? Because you're mostly YA and they're out of fashion. Well, I I read a lot of things. Well, you write YA right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that that's true. I think fantasy is a place where you can get away with prologues. 100%. Like epic, big fantasy, anyway. Yeah. 
But I think if you're in smaller books, it's harder to get away with it at the moment. That doesn't mean that they're not valuable, though. Anyway, prologue. Prologues can do a lot of work as far as promises go, especially if your stories can be shifting around between different stuff that's going on. So an example, so like in Sanderson's Stormlight Archives, he has not one, but two prologues at the beginning. And why would you, why would you read a book that has two prologues, right? Well, that's kind of the point, is because he's making the promise that this is the mother of all extra, fantasy books. Extra epic. So yeah. if you're not into this, get out now. It's Good true, point. actually. That's and actually, the way point. he sets up his world building is the same way. It's like mm -hmm. with a hatchet instead of with a sewing needle, if that yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> he doesn't do that in all of his books, but in Way of Kings, it's a wall of world building. Yeah. Because he wants you to know it's going to be like super, this the whole super, way through. So if curve. you're not into mm -hmm. that, get out now. If you didn't realize that when you picked up the book and wondered Which, if you could kill someone with it. <laughs> exactly. Another example, the book does this a little bit, but people are usually more familiar with the movie. Jurassic Park. There's a mini there's prologue. There's a prologue yeah. scene. The shoo where there's like this obvious, there's this, you don't know. When they're going to the shoot dinosaur, the velociraptor at the beginning. But there's a raptor oh, yeah. eating someone. This movie since I was like, yay, hi. Okay, well, so describe what happens. I'll describe what happens. At the beginning of the scene, there's an accident where a worker at the park is killed by, you don't necessarily know it's a dinosaur, but there's something with teeth that's horrifying and it killed a man. Probably a dinosaur in a dinosaur park. Just Jurassic. Saying. Well, they don't know it's a dinosaur park yet, <laughs> exactly. but the movie is called Jurassic Park. Well, so we okay. can talk about titles making promises in a minute. After you have that scene, it cuts to a couple paleontologists out in the desert digging up bones. Mm. And you don't actually see a dinosaur on screen for like another 10 minutes. So that opening scene is very important to promise the reader that you're not watching a movie about paleontologists digging. Yeah. You're watching a movie about paleontologists dying. Exactly. Getting eaten by dinosaurs. <laughs> very much. I think that's a really good example, That is actually. really... I was thinking of mm -hmm. um, Six of Crows, mm -hmm. I guess, when we talk about prologues. I don't know if the first chapter is officially labeled as a prologue, but because it's completely unrelated to like, yeah, the, perspective's the different. other characters, yeah. I'm going to count it as one. But for me, as a reader who had never read any Lee Bardugo stuff before I picked up Six of Crows, I had no idea what a Grisha was. I didn't know what a Heartrender was. I didn't know there was magic in this world. And so I really needed that first chapter as a way to situate myself within the wider scope of here's what's happening on in Kerch and all the other countries. And so I think that a prologue can function as not necessarily an info dump, but a way to get a lot of important information to your reader so that they know what sort of book they're going to be reading. So I was trying to think about prologues I like. Um, I don't usually like prologues, even though my book has one. Truly <laughs> 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 enough. Um, cause I don't, I don't think they're 100% necessary all the time. See another and way, I, right? I, <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes I'm not a huge fan of the prologues that sort of jump in the future as like a flash of like, what's going to happen. Yeah. But, um, in case, <laughs> yeah, I think those aren't as, um, informative or you or necessary. But one story that I was thinking of is Franny Billingsley's Chime. Oh, I love that. And book. yeah. And it's I don't okay. know if the beginning is actually a prologue or if it's just like a little, excerpt that's before the first chapter but anyways it starts and i wrote down the line here it starts with i've confessed everything and i'd like to be hanged now if you please and it's one of my favorite openings because it's hilarious and also sets up this whole entire character and her voice and the plot and a mystery and i feel like that made a good promise it does not tell you anything it doesn't you know set up the world it doesn't give any information really and it's not necessary in that way, but I think it's necessary in the sense that it hooks you and it makes a promise about 
other aspects of the book unrelated to plot. And I will probably talk about this in a little bit, but I think voice and character for me as a reader are probably the biggest promises that get me to continue reading a book. And so I feel like this is one of those prologues or openers where, you know, it's making a promise on the voice and the character. And that sort of hooked me. I think you have a great point about voice and character. So my boss at the agency gave us very small guidelines as for what she's looking for. But the biggest thing was that she would be willing to look at any book outside of her main genres and markets as long as the voice and character were phenomenal. And so I think what you said is absolutely right. Like if you can make a really strong promise on that, people are more likely to read. It's definitely voice that sells books, I think. That's just me. (laughs) I think a lot of people would agree with you. So. Titles can kind of do a lot of the same work that a prologue can do, but they take up a lot less space. You know, it's just on the front of your book. And one of the examples that came to my mind is Hold Me Closer, Necromancer by Lish McBride. The whole first chapter is about a college dropout who's working in a fast food restaurant. If you're into reading a book that has the title Hold Me Closer, Necromancer, but you don't know the title, you're not going to go through that first chapter. It's beautifully written, and Mm -hmm. it has an awesome voice. But the point being... Without the title, you don't you have no idea what you're getting into until you get to chapter two. With the title, it's like honest and upfront. Hold me closer, necromancer. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like you're like your dying wish. <laughs> well, that makes sense. That does make sense. I I did want to say just one thing about style consistency. That kind of falls under voice. But if you write a prologue, you can't write something that's beautiful and poetic and then have the rest of your book be like... Completely different. Yeah. You have to be consistent all the time. And it's great if you can consistently write different voices for different characters. Things I think it's worth noting that may be kind of frustrating to hear, but I think one of the biggest, most important promises that you make in the beginning of your book is how skillful you are as a writer. And tone and voice has a lot to do with it, but when you come off as really, really, really good in the beginning, people will cut you a lot more slack later on to mess around with stuff. That being said, a lot of people work on their first five chapters really, really hard and polish them up, and then the rest of the book doesn't hold up. And that is a problem. I testify. (laughs) Well, would you say it's fair to say that it's really hard to write a good first five chapters if you haven't actually written the rest of the book yet. I would definitely agree with that. So you can keep polishing those first five, but there's going to be stuff wrong with them until... There's going to be problems with it that you won't know until you re- until you write the rest. So we're going to move on to the second portion of our podcast where we critique an author's first chapter. We'll probably spend about two minutes on good things and then the next eight minutes on things that we feel like need a second look. Just to review how we do things, we try not to be prescriptive which means we will identify things that we feel like might be problems or that didn't work for us, but we're not going to tell you the things that you should do to fix it. That's up to you to listen to us or not listen to us since all feedback is subjective. So this book is about a girl named Sylvie. She has to do her sister's chores. She lives in Louisiana and she just wants to get out of her house and away from her mother and away from her sister and go talk to this really cute guy in town and some interesting things happen while she's there. There's a mysterious stranger who's asking about her. I think it's worth her. pointing out that it is, what year was it? Uh, late, late 18th century. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. 1790 something. 1797. 1797. So this Good is a year. historical, I'm going to say romance, based on the promises. but it, My historical fantasy is what I'm thinking. Okay. So based on what we guess, these are the promises that you made to us. <laughs> <laughs> things we like. Um, I think... There's so much excellent tone and setting in here. The bayou, it just sinks into every description in here, talking about like a cottonmouth 
in a metaphorical sense rather than a physical sense. Um, yeah, all the all the metaphors that the main character uses are linked to her environment and not just something that you like someone say, else would exactly. pull off the shelf. I particularly appreciated that we get some scent going on here because I feel like writers always forget smells and swamps smell. <laughs> no, I completely agree. I felt like the setting really came alive and yeah, she's or he. I don't know. <laughs> it, it felt like one writer. I felt like they really focused a lot on other senses aside from the sight. You mentioned smell. I thought that was great. But just like the sounds and the different sensations, I thought that was great. And I, I thought the voice was really good on this. In the beginning, I really liked this character. And just like, she's a little annoyed at her sister, but it comes off as lo- lovable at first. And I just thought the voice was really well done. And the voice plus the setting, there was a lot that sort of in the voice tied into the setting, which I thought was great. I agree. I think we have a really good idea of who Sylvia is based off of this chapter and what she does. We know she's a little self-centered. We know she's pretty competent. We know she's a pretty good flirt. We know that even if she's annoyed by her sister, she cares about her. So there's some good details going on here. I thought that there were some nice moments of foreshadowing, too, where you have the mysterious stranger show up and we kind of assume that he'll be an important part. And then when the dog growls at this boy she likes so much and there's a bunch of contrasts set up like between light and darkness and the name of the book is Dark Bayou. And so I just assume that some exciting stuff is going to happen and the light will not be there. Unless it's like Cameron says and that light is bad and darkness is good. I don't, I don't think I said that. Really, not about this book. Unrelated. <laughs> we better start setting up twists soon if that's the case. <laughs> Do we want to... Uh, One more thing. Okay, great. Um, It's a small thing, but I really like... So right above the words chapter one, we have a nice little heading that I'm going to mispronounce this. It says... Meriburg, um, Bayou Manchac, 1797. So it's I think like you just slaughtered the French. I know. I just absolutely. <laughs> this is why we read it. You don't have to say it out loud. You just, I know. You just see the but letters. It, but it, but the point being is it's like not even a sentence, and it just gives so much information though. It feels a little bit like cheating. But it's, it's not, not though, really... especially not with historical. But as I say, it's not really cheating if it works. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, okay, like so let's move on to the second part. Things that we feel like might need a second look. I felt like by the end of the submission. I was getting a lot of angst about the sister. And I understand that that's probably a really big part of the book, but I felt like maybe it was a little bit too heavy for me. I agree. I really liked that in the beginning. I thought it she was a little snarky and annoyed, but I thought it was, you know, I still liked her and it sort of was endearing. But then it definitely kept going on a little bit too long for me. And it felt like that was the sole, well, it felt like the sole focus of this first chapter had split into. One was about the sister and how annoying she was. And the other was about this boy, I think his name is Jacob, who she likes. And I felt as if there were way more interesting things happening in the chapter, but she didn't seem to think that they were interesting. (laughs) So by the end, I was a little tired with this character. And I was particularly interested in this stranger who came to town. I thought that was a really interesting addition to the chapter and kind of wanted her to stop paying attention to, (laughs) to this boy who's clearly at least is set up to being not such a great guy and sort of give her attention to the stranger who is this stranger why are they there um so yeah after a while i was like okay (laughs) i wondered about that a little bit because it seems like in a little town like that if someone comes into town who you don't know that that's kind of a big deal maybe i kind of got from her yeah they they commented on it i was surprised that she i guess she could be really super single-minded and just be like jacob 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 but i was a little bit annoyed the same way 
I didn't have a problem with it because to me it said a lot about Sylvie as a character. Now, if the things that it's saying about Sylvie aren't things that we want to be said about Sylvie, then it's a problem. So what I got from it was that Sylvie is super conquest-minded, where like she doesn't even really like Jacob all that much. She just wants to prove that she can flirt with him, and I think that's an interesting place to start a protagonist. Well, but... it, it might not have even about been about Jacob. But it might have been about her sister. Her, yeah, her sister, because mm-hmm. she thinks her mom thinks Jacob would be good for her sister. Cameron has well, a so I don't know. So I might be a little bit in the minority here, but I didn't really have a problem with it. Like, I definitely got the sense this is not someone I'd actually want to know. But watching her do what she does, she seems competent enough, and she's doing things interesting enough that even though I don't like her at all, I want to see what she does next. So I didn't have any problems with the characterization in this chapter. I, I see kept the only one here, but I didn't. No, I mean I didn't oh, really have a problem with in? it either. I I don't think I'd want to be her friend, but I don't like dislike her. So subjective. <laughs> I wanted to add about the sister, or like being really focused. Like um, Tracy said, that it divides into two parts. There's the fact that she likes Jacob and the fact that she does not like her sister. I felt like I was a little bit overloaded with that. I really like Jacob or rather would really like to land Jacob, I guess. There's a part where there's, it seems like there's a big, there's a series of things where she's trying to show him what a good wife she would be. There's like five things in a row and I, I did not actually look at the submission to see my notes, but the last one, she, someone gives her a loaf of bread because she helped heal them or something. Cause she's a healer. And her reaction is, I hope Jacob notices what a good wife I'll be because I get bread for free or not for free. I, people give me bread and that's good. And by that time, I was just kind of like, oh, really? <laughs> See, I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. Well, know. there you go. I personally found her to feel a little bit manipulative yes, and for sure. petty with that. And so whereas I started this story really liking her, I ended up not really caring for her by the end. But I think when you're writing a character who's starting out in a place where they're not likable, which I don't think is bad, and I like reading about these unlikable narrators, but I think there has to be something that we can like about them. So whether, you know, maybe she's manipulative toward Jacob, but there's something else in her life that we like. And here, I just didn't feel as if there was anything, there's no kindness, really. She felt a little bit manipulative to, or, you know, non-caring to the townswoman that she was talking to so i think for me i i felt like i needed something else to know that this is a character that i want to spend 300 or so pages with i think that's true we actually just talked about the last we just talked with um another author about yeah trisha about having sympathetic characters i think it's really important to know that you don't have to have a super likable character but we do need to sympathize with your character and have a reason to want to continue to follow them I mean, yeah, just for me, I would definitely agree that she's super manipulative. I just think she's entertainingly manipulative. Oh, so Cameron's on board. I, actually, I think I agree with Cameron. I, But I do wish... Okay, so this is going to get kind of... Pers- no, I'm going to keep it reader response. Reader response <laughs> is that I'm totally on board with her being manipulative, but I wish either we could give us a stronger reason for why she's being so manipulative or I kind of figured it was just because she wants to marry the guy. I don't think she does though. Well, I mean, I, I actually, I feel like I got the manipulation because I feel like she's in this home situation where she doesn't want to live with her mom anymore. I'm pretty sure. And she's mad at her little sister or competitive with her little sister. And so she's like, I'm going to win this guy. And so I, I kind of got it, I guess. 
but I wasn't on board for it necessarily. And I think there was kind of a moment of maybe you could read it as not kindness, but at the end when Agnesa is like super sick, I felt like that dialogue was lovingly teasing about Jacob where it's like, I'm not doing any more of your chores. And then I had a nice visit with Jacob. He didn't ask her after you once. You need to wake up to tell me that the only reason Jacob didn't ask is because he didn't have enough time. Like, she's, she, this is like something that is familiar to both sisters. They're in it. I, I didn't feel like it. As someone with three sisters who are very competitive, I understood that part. But if it's not intended to be cruel, I think maybe it needs a little bit of softening around it to make all readers understand what's going on. I can see that. I had a couple of littler things. So I grew up in California and have never lived near anywhere swampy. And so as soon as she mentioned wanting to go into the bayou, I was like, oh, she's going to sink into the water. And so when she talked about going down a path, I was like, wait a second, where's the swamp? And so this might just be a problem that is mine or any other reader who hasn't lived next to a swamp. But um, I was expecting alligators like right next to her house. I don't know that that's a problem. That's maybe just a reader response thing that was clarified very quickly. And so it's maybe not a problem, but that's just what I thought. I guess this is my week just to disagree because <laughs> I did grow up next to swamps. And so I get it, but maybe it's worth considering adding in a little bit extra description. I mean, if we're going around taking turns, I, I mean, I've been to New Orleans. I didn't, so I didn't have a problem with it. Okay. But... <laughs> did you? Well, I grew up in Massachusetts and... I actually really like the setting and I could really see it, but I think that's just because of watching movies with that setting and I can picture it in my head, but I thought she did a really good job with it. Okay. Awesome. I didn't have a problem with the things that were described. It was just like... You wanted Loma more. No. It was just me. Yeah. My... Oh, okay. It was like I'd made a promise to myself about, (laughs) about what the bayou was supposed to look like and it was not the right one. So maybe it doesn't matter at all because it was clarified very quickly what it was supposed to look like. Because she did a really good job with the setting. I had a couple of other little things. When she first finds out that this stranger that she just saw is looking for her, there's no emotional reaction for like maybe a page or two. I agree with that. And so I was surprised about that. It's a very delayed reaction Mm -hmm. to that. I thought overall this was a really clean submission. The one thing that I will say, I don't know. Did we get a whole chapter? I I feel like this... I think it might have stopped at 10 pages. Okay, exactly. So it could be very possible that it's cleared up. But as I was saying earlier, to me, this feels like it's going to be historical with touches of magic or something paranormal in it. And Caitlin sounded like she didn't quite get that. And so... It could be cleared up within this chapter. It could be cleared up within the next chapter, but it's just something to consider as far as reader response goes. One of the one of the things we we're talking about earlier, one of the issues being that none of us here speak French, mm-hmm. so we weren't entirely sure necessarily what some of the words referred to, or whether or not they were made up or not. I oh no, I I didn't have problems with like the Creole. I just had because like she's this healer. Her dog has one creepy eye. There were just like tonal cues that made me think something. Mm-hmm was going to be happening that wasn't strictly speaking like realistic that's all i feel like it could go either way for me i didn't feel anything that was overtly magical in the first one but she did talk about like the fog coming in Uh which i'm like i don't know anything about swamps is that something that happens and makes people sick i did get overtones of people are going to get sick i agree i i thought there was that something paranormal happening i felt like the first sentence really set that up well Mm-hmm. Um, if that, if that's, that's the direction it's going in, I thought it was the heavy was smell of death, death and resurrection and was oh, yeah. really a nice line and sort of hints at that maybe there's something with paranormal going on with death or 
something like that sort of gave me those vibes. Okay, one last thing. This is more of a, re- a response than necessarily something that needs a second look, but I thought it was interesting that she's a healer when it doesn't seem like either of her parents are. So I was wondering through the submission where she learned what she knows. This isn't something that I necessarily need to have answered right now, but it is something I feel like at least I would like to know sooner rather than later. It doesn't seem like something she would have just picked up. Right. You're a much more or, observant or, reader than I am. I was or, totally... <laughs> <laughs> or if it is something that she just picked up, then it seems like that would be really significant, and I yeah. want to hear about it. Okay. Well, then we will wrap things up for today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Tracy. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. For a literary work in progress, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi, Caitlin here. If you're interested in looking at the submission that was featured in today's podcast, you can find it on our website, literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. That's literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. If you're interested in submitting your work for us to look at, you can find our submission guidelines on that same website. And we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and leave us a rating and comment while you're there because it helps other people to discover our podcast. Thanks and see you next week.